Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi everyone and welcome to Mentally Yours. I'm Yvette and today our guest is Dr. Amelia Molimpakis. She's a neuroscientist and today we're going to be chatting about how doctors monitor and measure depression, whether we should rethink the current depression questionnaires. I started my research career about 12 years ago and at that point I was just looking at how our brain functions and in particular how people with different um, mental health conditions, neurodegenerative disorders, neurodevelopmental disorders, have processed language. So I started with Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, kind of those older age cognitive decline disorders, and then over time naturally progressed into mood disorders. I think it just more and more people I would see with Alzheimer's also had depression. So it kind of transitioned quite naturally there. Um, I then just became a lot more interested in it when um, I had a, a close friend of mine actually experience depression and that kind of triggered the whole themia uh, experience as well. Mm. Um, are you all right to talk a bit more about sort of that experience with your friends? Because um, I was just wondering what's, what surprised you about the treatment that your friend received or, or the lack of treatment that they received? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm very happy to to talk about it. I know she's happy about that as well. So um when I was uh, still an academic, I was doing my postdoc at UCL, um, and then I, I was actually already specializing in, in depression. Uh, my best friend, who was also an academic, developed um, depression symptoms. And in the beginning, they were quite minor, and it's such a common thing in academia that none of us really thought anything about it. We just thought, oh, she'll, she'll go see her GP um, they'll put her on some treatment or something, and, and everything will be fine. So she did see her GP. 
they said, oh, well, you know, probably you could benefit from some talking therapy, but but they didn't really say anything else about it. They asked her a few questions and that was kind of it. So she actually started getting quite a bit worse over time. And so because the NHS wasn't really helping her at that point, they didn't seem to think she needed more specialist care. She actually ended up going privately and seeing um, first a psychologist and then a psychiatrist. And actually what happened there was very similar to what happened with her GP. They simply asked her a set of questions. And um, in particular, one of the questions they asked her was, okay, on a scale of one to four in the past two weeks, how sad have you felt? Um, and then on a scale of one to four in the past two weeks, how suicidal have you felt? How have you felt whether you know you wanted to, to hurt yourself or not? And those were just the only questions that they were asking her. And um, she actually didn't really know how to respond to the questions and she couldn't really express herself that well at the time. And what happened was they just didn't realize that it was really bad. And then just two days after seeing her psychiatrist, she actually tried to take her own life. And when that happened, we were meant to be meeting up that day. She didn't show up. And so I went to her house and I found her. And thankfully, uh, that meant that she wasn't successful. We were able to get her to hospital, but it was just completely unnecessary and traumatic for everyone involved. And I just really could not get over how she'd literally seen your psychiatrist two days before. Like, why did this have to happen? essentially. And that kind of really pushed me to look at the psychiatric system and the NHS and private system surrounding mental health and realize that actually they are using the same subjective questionnaires, like the ones I just, the questions I just mentioned to you, they've been using these same questions for half a century, some of them maybe a century since like World War I. It's insane despite the fact that in research we've been finding out about so many more objective biomarkers of depression and other mental health conditions, that these are just not being made available to clinicians and we really need to make them available. What they have really isn't isn't enough, essentially. Mm. I think that what's really scary to me about that story is just the fact that, you know, we hear lots from people sort of, I mean, it, it is understandable sort of, people sort of saying you know ask for help ask for help if you're if you're struggling with your mental health and there was your friend who clearly was asking for help and going you know doing all the right things that you're supposed to do going to your GP or then going privately if that's you know doesn't really seem to work so asking for the help but then not just not getting it I think it's very hard like there's this this immense stigma around mental health and so I think regardless of whether you're asking for help or not, the fact that you have to answer these questions that can be very uncomfortable to answer at the best of times really puts you on the spot almost as a patient, even if you're trying to seek help. If someone's asking you, are you going to hurt yourself or are you suicidal or any of these things, I think there's like an inherent fear in people that, oh, what if I say yes? Are they going to lock me up? Like, are they going to take me to hospital? There's this fear. What's going to happen to me if I actually admit this? And then, you know, you end up not admitting it and there's no other way to track it. So other than, you know, by admission or by answering questions. So you're kind of really stuck. Uh, I can see how this happens so often. Mm. Yeah. Can you talk us sort of through a bit more the the current like depression questionnaire that you've mentioned already 
Um, I'm sure that a lot of our listeners are familiar with that, and I'm actually familiar with it as, as well, um, what we sort of currently have. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, when you're talking to a GP, they really have only these standardized questionnaires to go by. The classic one among them being um, the patient health questionnaire or or PHQ as it's known. And then there's a number after it, um, nine, basically indicating the nine questions that are in this questionnaire. Uh, and all of these questions are uh, rating questions. So on a scale of one to four in the past two weeks, how much have you felt like X? And each of the nine questions kind of in that X position, you put um, each of the core symptoms of depression, uh, which are what clinicians are looking for. So you have things like questions focusing on fatigue. So, you know, on a scale of one to four, how good has your sleep been? Or how often have you felt disturbed in your in your sleep patterns? You have um, questions on loss of interest or lack of pleasure, which is also a symptom of depression. So asking you something like, okay, on a scale of one to four, um, how frequently have you felt like you have lost interest or pleasure in doing stuff? It's very, very explicitly asking um about the symptom. And so anybody really can understand what they're expected to answer if they're, you know, if they want to appear as though they have depression or if they don't want to appear like that, if they want to have medication or if they don't. Very, very easy to manipulate the answers to that. Um, when you go to psychiatrists, unfortunately, it's not, it's not much different, actually. They are mental health experts. The big difference between a GP and a psychiatrist is kind of the, the, the exposure that the psychiatrist has to the, to the variety of conditions and obviously like their expertise in this. But ultimately, all they have as tools are observation skills. So maybe they, they see some stuff that the, that the GP doesn't notice and they have a little bit more time, but then they also still have just those questions. Um, ultimately, at this point, there isn't anything like you would have in physical health. There's no such thing as a blood test for depression or a blood pressure cuff or a thermometer, if you will, that would, you know, ping or notify the clinician that actually this person is suffering from this type of symptom of depression. I think this is so important because actually there is a very big misconception about depression and a lot of other mental health conditions. What actually helps psychiatrists, um, identify the right treatment for someone it's not actually the diagnosis itself that's typically not really what clinicians like specialist clinicians struggle with they struggle with trying to find the right treatment and that is based on symptoms so if you don't have a good handle on the symptoms and all you have is questions like one question per symptom or something like that then it's no wonder that it can take almost a decade sometimes to find the right treatment for someone, even if they are seeing a specialist clinician. It really is this massive trial and error process that can feel incredibly disheartening. And uh, you, I mean, you're told at the GP or at your psychiatrist, oh, we're going to put you on this medication for the next six to eight weeks, you might actually feel worse. And then we'll see if actually it, it, it might have an effect in eight weeks. It's very disheartening to hear that. Mm. And it does seem it's it's a very kind of a one size fits all type thing, which I've kind of experienced myself in terms of depression, because I remember years ago, I was sort of I was struggling. Um, and the nurse that I saw sort of said it was it's almost like she was doing a kind of checkbox things of, of me. And I just because I turned up and she said, oh, well, you obviously sort of take pride in your appearance or something like that. And obviously, for some people, um, well, actually, including myself, like you sort of may, maybe making less effort with your parents can be a, a symptom of depression but actually for me 
the, at, at that time, the norm for me of taking pride in my, my appearance was kind of making wearing makeup every day and doing lots of my hair. So I actually wasn't taking pride in my appearance, like for, for me. Yeah. Um, so it's it's so sort of different for everybody, isn't it? Sort of this, the signs. Um, and also, I think it's really interesting what you said earlier about kind of talking about suicide, because um, like you said, I mean, even if you are sort of having those thoughts, you might you might be scared to express them. You might, like you say, you might be worried that if you do tell anyone, um, you might sort of immediately be sectioned, which obviously isn't the case. But um, so it's it, it's tricky, it's tricky, isn't it? Um, when you're faced with that question, whether you're actually going to be honest about how you've been feeling absolutely not. yeah i think it's it's such a it's such a problematic way of identifying the problem and and treating the problem if you have problems with your with your mind and your mental health and you're relying on that person's mind and mental health to actually be able to express themselves well then you're just basically in a in an impossible situation a lot of the time and depression is one of those cases where Actually, some people can express themselves. There's a lot of other cases where they people don't have the the wherewithal or the self awareness, and that is actually a symptom of the condition itself. This lack of self awareness, which makes it impossible for them to be able to express themselves. Um, it's it's incredibly difficult if you go to somebody who's in the throes of a psychotic episode or something like that. They're they're it's going to be impossible for them to be able to properly and fairly express how they're feeling and that's to no fault of their own it's it's a failure in the system I think and again this this I don't want it to come across like I'm saying that it's a failure of the clinicians that's not at all what uh, I'm trying to say here it's more a case of there hasn't been enough push to bring more objective metrics that are out there into the hands of these clinicians, give them more tools that they can use to bolster all of their expertise and experience and knowledge. I think uh, a statistic that I like to I like to talk about, which is little known, is there there is this kind of um, this label of major depressive disorder or depression more more broadly, and then there's if if you know about depression, you know that there is like kind of seven to nine core symptoms of depression, the number depending kind of on whether you're a psychiatrist based in the UK, in Europe, or whether you're in the US. But if you actually sit and break down those symptoms and you see like how much of each symptom is necessary in order to be classified as having depression, if you look at it combinatorically, there's actually over 500,000 combinations that could make somebody um, basically be labeled as having depression. There are 500,000 ways you could be depressed and each one requires a slightly different approach in its treatment. If all you have are a few questions, there is absolutely no way you're going to find which of those 500,000 ways that person is, is experiencing at that time. And that's for depression. If we expand that to um, say schizophrenia, which has many more symptoms, like more something along the lines of 35 to 40 symptoms, the number of ways you can actually be experiencing or displaying schizophrenia is actually 7 trillion. I mean, that is insane in terms of numbers. We need much more, 
like many more handles on how to treat each of these different experiences, essentially. Um, just quickly going back to that um, depression questionnaire, just because I, I don't know, I'm kind of it's so interesting that that's what's still used. Um, how was it originally formulated and when was it formulated? You said it was quite a while ago. And I mean, it sounds obvious now, I'm saying, given what you've said since, but what's it missing? How can we improve it? I think so. I think the original one, and um, I may be mistaken here on, on kind of exact dates, etc. but I think the original one was developed roughly in the 40s. And then it's kind of been iterated on a little bit as you go um, in the 60s and the 70s. Um, but ultimately, most of these questionnaires have just been around basically since roughly then, like the 60s, 70s. And they all kind of try to get at the symptoms of depression in a in a similar but also slightly different way to each other. Typically, they are retrospective. So you come into your um, to your clinician's practice and they basically sit you down and they start asking you these questions. But most of them don't ask you about how you feel right in this precise moment. They're interested in understanding how you felt for a little while. So you have the PHQ-9, which focuses on, say, the past two weeks. You have some of the other questionnaires that actually focus on the past month or so. Now, you may think that actually this is a good thing because you're saying, okay, I want to understand how you've been feeling for a while because to be diagnosed with depression you must have been feeling these symptoms for an amount of time at least. The problem that research has found is actually the way you are feeling in that precise moment on that day when you're visiting your clinician can actually color how you feel or how you remember all of the previous days and weeks leading up to that appointment. So that's been very well documented that there is this retrospective bias or remembrance bias um, of the person who's experiencing depression. If they're feeling good on that day, everything is going to be a m much better, essentially. If they're feeling bad on that day, then everything is going to be much worse about the previous two weeks. So just that in and of itself can give you an example that how, how this can fail to capture the true nature of the problem. There's also been a lot of evidence, a lot of research to suggest that different people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, men versus women, they respond differently to these same questions, even if they all do experience similar symptoms of depression. So if you've been going through treatment and if you've been talking to your psychiatrist for a while, over time, they'll understand essentially the, the, the extent of your symptoms. When people have done that in studies and then looked back at these questionnaires, they see very big differences. Um, and that is also problematic. So you can see there's like a lot of um, socioeconomic gender bias, um, ethnic bias and how people express and, you know, perceive how they feel about things. It, it really is just a very problematic way to, to get at that core problem. It does sound very challenging, actually, um, for doctors in the first place to be recognising depression sometimes. Um, what are some of the other challenges that doctors face when it comes to identifying depression and the severity of it in particular? Yeah, I think it's 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 a combination of things. If we're just looking at a GP, for instance, the main issue GPs in this country face um, for depression and for every other condition really is a lack of time. You have five to 10 minutes with your clinician, uh, your GP. You must have gone there expressing an issue with depression for them to actually screen you for it. Otherwise, they just do not have time. 
Um, and they must be like a lot of them are incredibly like most of them are incredibly pressed for time. And so they aren't really observing you necessarily to pick up on that, um, on those symptoms of depression. They don't know you well enough. They see you once every month or once every two months when you go for another problem. So they're like automatically successful triaging, successful identification of symptoms is a massive challenge for GPs. Like you really need to put yourself forward to get help. Then when you look at psychiatrists, they also face not the problem of time, but really a problem of contextualization. So a clinician Basically, as I mentioned, they have like these observation skills. When a clinician sees a patient for the first time, they have these questionnaires, but they also have something in their head that they're kind of like a list that's called the mental status exam that you typically perform as a psychiatrist with every person coming in. And you're trying to tick off certain things that could um, help you identify for depression. So you're looking at things like, is the person speaking slowly? Are they speaking fast? Are they dressed appropriately? Are they reacting in the right way to these questions? Is their tone of voice and their facial expression actually matching one another? If somebody is saying that they are feeling very depressed, but they're having a laughing fit, or they're talking about suicide, and you know they're they're laughing or smiling or jumping about really really clear dissonance between the two that can indicate um, like that in itself can be a symptom of other disorders but when clinicians are doing this categorization or are going through the list um, in their head ultimately they 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 also lack this context the context they operate in is well how did the previous patient i see actually compared to this, if they were speaking really fast, maybe I think this person's speaking slowly, actually, in comparison, or vice versa. Also things like, you know, have you had your lunch yet? Are you as a clinician experiencing fatigue? That can also affect your judgment. And I think all of these things, and the fact that it is a trial and error process when it comes to treatment, unfortunately, that can have a massive impact on the clinician's own fatigue and and mental health. There's so many clinicians who experience their own like depression and you know suicidal thoughts because they see their patients deteriorate and some of them do commit suicide that is a massive burden to bear as a clinician it's such a hard job to have to do and so we're seeing actually psychiatrist numbers shrinking rather than growing to meet the growing demand for them it it really is a a, a very problematic um system at the moment yeah, and that's a really real worry as well. I think because um, we sort of hear that mental health issues are kind of on the rise, especially sort of after COVID and lockdown. Tell us more about your work and your thoughts on um, alternative ways that doctors can kind of reach the right diagnosis um, and find the right treatment plan for people suffering with depression. Yeah, absolutely. So um, my original research, while I was an academic focused, uh, as I mentioned previously, on looking at how people understand and process language, but also how they produce language. So if you look at how somebody is speaking, you can basically dissect that into, on the one hand, the sounds, so the acoustic properties of speech, how they sound, like, is their voice breaking? Is there changes? Uh, are there changes in intonation? Um, are there changes in pitch and loudness? that can be incredibly interesting and indicative of 
various mental health conditions. Similarly, if you look at the content of what they're saying, so are they using a lot of personal pronouns? Are they using a lot of sad or or happy words? Um, That can be very indicative as well. What we do currently at Themia is we're basically taking that research that I was doing, but combining it with other scientific areas, specifically computer vision and AI, experimental psychology. So we're combining as many data sets or data streams, if you will, as we can in order to create an objective um, overview of someone's mental health condition. So specifically, we look at three different data streams. One is speech patterns. So that's the, the language content and the acoustic properties of speech. Secondly, we look at video. So we look at everything that you can capture from a smart device camera. That can be your eye gaze patterns. So where are you looking on the screen? We look at facial micro expressions. So this is essentially overlaying someone's face with a grid of thousands of pinpoints. And we're looking at each of those pinpoints, how they interact with the others around them and how they move. And then finally, we're looking at twitching and upper body movements. That makes the second stream. And the third one is broadly what we class as behavior, but really it's looking at how you are interacting with your smart device. So how are you tapping the screen? Um, Are you making mistakes when we're showing you different things, et cetera? And we gather all of these different data points from specially designed video games, actually. So um, each video game embeds a classic neuropsychology protocol at its core. So we're basically targeting different cognitive domains that have been affected or can be affected by depression and gathering all of these data uh, about from, from these different, um, to, to show basically the different cognitive domains. And when you put them all together, you can actually get a very good understanding of all of the different core symptoms of depression in a much more objective way. And that's without having to ask any questions, without having to make anyone uncomfortable. It's just having you play a game and then seeing how you're behaving in the game itself. Just kind of in a nutshell, essentially, um, just thinking about how it works practically, rather than sort of um, a big long questionnaire of very specific, like you say, questions about your mood and depression. Well, what you've come up with is um, a game that people play that then kind of assesses while they're playing. Is that right? Yes, exactly. So the idea is for the past two, three decades or so, there have been more and more research studies and clinical trials showing that there are indeed physiological biomarkers that are associated or correlated with depression symptoms. What we are doing is finding an engaging way to gather those biomarkers from several different areas and combining them so that we can gather data on all of the different symptoms and actually provide the output to the clinician. So this is, it's super, super interesting basically that you can have biomarkers from different domains. And it's very important that you gather data from all of these different data streams, because actually what we found in our research is um, different symptoms are actually much more strongly correlated with different biomarkers. So voice, for instance, is much more strongly correlated with fatigue, but behavior in a game is actually more strongly correlated with psychomotor effects or basically a slowing down of your movements. So if you want to capture all of the symptoms of depression and all of the variety of expressions of depression in patients, you should gather all of these different data streams, essentially. Yeah. And just like from a user's point of view, what are the, what do they actually, what are they actually presented with in terms of the game? Right. So um, every 
person basically gets a link whenever their um, clinician has assigned them a new activity. And so they'll go in, they'll log on to the platform, and then uh, they'll play one of these games. Each game targets a slightly different cognitive area. What the patient sees is, um, at the moment, say, let's focus on on one of the games that uh, looks at working memory. We show them a deck of cards. Um, We start to show them cards one after the other, and we ask them to remember the order in which the cards are presented and they have to react in a certain way whenever they see matching cards, etc. And so there's different levels to the game. It gets progressively harder. But what this is doing is it's targeting visual and numeric working memory, which are both associated with um, issues uh, in depression, essentially. So if you if you have depression, you'll behave in a very specific way in terms of reaction times and errors. And that's exactly what we're picking up on. Now, as a patient or as a, as a user of the platform, you don't actually know what the pattern is you should be exhibiting in order to be classed as having depression. It's a very specific range of reaction times, but we know that. So effectively, we're getting around the issue of being able to game the system, so to speak, no pun intended, or uh, basically being able to get at this in a more objective way. I'd just like to finish up, if that's all right, by, um, by asking you about what friends and family can do in terms of supporting people with depression first of all sort of the sort of things that they should look out for when it comes to symptoms but also what we what you'd say to anyone who's trying to support someone with depression I think it's it's a very complex one because every individual will experience depression slightly differently and in their own way one of the key things that I would suggest looking out for as family is really changes in behavior, whatever that means for that particular individual. So if somebody's typically very outgoing and suddenly they start to see their friends less and less, or they prefer to stay at home, or they they have this change in behavior, and it could be something as subtle as, typically I would go for a walk in this area and it's quite a long way from my home, but I like that walk to suddenly going, well, actually I'm just going to walk around the block or I'm going to stay home. So changes in behavior, not just towards other people, but also, you know, in your everyday interactions, uh, sorry, in your everyday um, movements and patterns, that can be quite uh, a strong indicator that something's wrong. And again, this could be depression. It could be other elements like it could be anxiety, it could be stress, it could be bipolar, it could be all sorts of things. But typically you're looking for changes in behavior. Um, you're looking for things like, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, um, a loss of interest or a loss of pleasure in the same things that people used to enjoy doing. Say they used to love playing tennis or playing the piano and now they barely touch a racket or or the piano. Um, that could be indicative. As a family member or as a friend, I think the most important thing is to give the person the space to express themselves as they want, show them that you care, but at the same time, don't push as much, but just be there for them so that they can talk whenever they want. If you see that things are getting worse and the person isn't talking and they aren't seeking help, then maybe try to help them get help. If you see, go with them to the GP or um, help them basically get the help they need. And given the fact that we've seen now there are these questionnaires and the questions themselves are subjective, sometimes it can actually help 
particularly with younger people or with older people, it can help to have um, a carer or a friend or someone be in the room with them so that they can actually answer some questions too on behalf of the individual or they can talk to the clinician afterwards and, and help answer some questions because they will have more distance and more clarity than the individual sometimes. But again, these are just some some pieces of advice. They won't work for everyone. I think the most important thing is to show the the person that you're there and that you care. So this is goodbye from mentally yours. So go away, enjoy your day, get on with all your chores from mentally, 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 mentally yours. Mentally yours. Mentally If you've been affected by any of the issues we've been chatting about today, please give the Samaritans a ring on 116123. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and subscribe to our channel and perhaps even go back and listen to some old episodes. We have many of them. Also, you can get in contact with us. We have a lovely Facebook group, which is called Mentally Yours. And we're also on Twitter at MentallyYRS. See you next week. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.